Can I borrow your rancid CD, mother? Hey, yo, what's good, Internet? It's the Harvester Colin Atrophy, a.k.a. Slice Slice Baby, a.k.a. No Parm, No Fell, a.k.a. The Queen P. And uh, it is my pleasure to welcome you back to Radio Harvester. I've been gone a long time, and I'm glad to be here. And uh, I'm glad to introduce my guest this month, Shannon Thompson, one half of Nervous Nelly Records, singer of Pandemics, drummer of Long Gone, two great bands, two different genres, Check them out for yourself. I keep trying to describe them and doing a bad job in all my outtakes of this intro, so I'm just going to say Pandemics is a punk band. Long Gone is a grunge band. If anyone's got a problem with those descriptions, fucking fight me. I'm going to learn some kind of martial art in the future to defend myself against Donald Trump supporters. So wait a couple months and then fight me, because then I'll be able to kick butt. Uh, Anyway, it's... uh, it's a terrible, we live in a terrible, we've always lived in a terrible world, but the world has become terrible in ways we couldn't have even imagined in the past. And uh, so I'd like to offer you an opportunity to time travel for 45 minutes back to the end of 2015 when Donald Trump being president wasn't even something that any of us had considered. And we can just talk about Shannon's punk mom and running a record label and growing up in Connecticut and all kinds of stuff. Okay, let's get to it. Um, I've always been into reading and writing. I don't know. Um, sure. Where'd you grow up? Connecticut. The central Connecticut. There's West Hartford, Hartford, obviously, then, right. at, then East Hartford and Manchester, and okay. I grew up in Manchester. In Manchester. Was yeah. there like a record store or something there? Yeah. Or like a spot that did punk shows? Yeah. There's something... I know Manchester from my tri-state area punk map. There's... Something with a number in the name. Sure. <laughs> I don't I don't remember what it was called. It was before my time. But I remember picking up the Punk Uprisings Volume 2 compilation sure. on Go-Kart Records. Uh-huh. And uh, in the liner notes was a list of like punk venues on the East Coast. And one in my town was listed. So that's... That's what I know about what I think you're thinking about. Sure, yeah. I don't know. Um, so how'd you get into punk? Like, what was punk like? How old were you? And, like, what was your entry point? Sure. I guess I'm curious about. Um, my mom has a fantastic record collection. <laughs> okay. Um, and I don't really remember her, like, listening to much punk while I was growing up, necessarily. Um, I think the first record, like vinyl record, that I remember her like playing for me was Prince's Dirty Mind. Okay. It's um, a great record. Yeah, it's a perfect record. Yeah. <laughs> um, Absolutely. I, I have a very clear memory of 
asking her like what records were and her like showing me how to play one and you know and she was like and you drop the needle and you turn it up real loud and it was dirty mind (laughs) i had a similar i think LPs are fascinating to children, right? Because mm-hmm. like they're such a cool object. I remember flipping through my dad's Grateful Dead records. Yeah. Because they had really cool covers. Yeah. And being like, "What is this?" Yeah. And then him being like, "Oh, let me show you," and then being so disappointed with how wimpy it sounded. And I was just right. like, "I hate this band." Yeah. I was pretty little too, but I was just like, "This is not." There's a lot of skulls on these albums, and this does not sound like Skulls look. Right. <laughs> you know what sure. I mean? But um, I will say I've never, I, to this day, I don't think I've recreationally listened to The Grateful Dead. Yeah. Um, I like, I don't know that I could hum a Grateful Dead song for you right now. Yeah, I don't think. Oh, there's Case, the Casey Jones. People know that song. Something a train high on cocaine. That, that one's a Grateful Dead song. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I trust you. Yeah. Um, but we were talking about how you got into punk. So your mom has a really good record collection. My mom has a really good record collection. Um, I don't really remember her listening to a lot of punk while I was like super young, but she definitely listened to punk before I was born. Um, maybe was a punk, I don't know. Uh, one of the best lies that I ever told was that my mom saw Crass. Which, <laughs> like, I, I definitely convinced, like, some kids in my middle school of that. But, that's cool. Um, I mean, it's definitely a good lie. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's but, a cool lie. But it makes, it's, like, feasible because my mom, you know, exposed me to the Clash and the Ramones, like, relatively early. Like, I didn't realize that was punk. Right. Like, because the other stuff she was listening to was pretty much... Uh, easy listening jazz when I was like you know eight, nine, ten or whatever like Michael Bolton? <laughs> I don't even know like stuff that left no impression but she had like some first wave ska compilations and like some recent like Clash reissues or something on CD she had like sure. all the original like Clash records and stuff and like a Ramones greatest hits collection and I think it was in when I was in seventh grade, and she was playing "And Out Come the Wolves" by Rancid during dinner. And I was like, <laughs> "This is really good. Like, I think I like this. Like, can I borrow your Rancid CD, Mother?" And I, <laughs> she like went out, and I like sat in my room with her Rancid CD and like studied the lyrics and. <clears throat> Uh, that is kind of the moment that I realized that there's this whole like aesthetic and viewpoint and culture associated with this uh, with this musical sound. Sure. And that was kind of because the Clash and the Ramones was just music to me before that. Because right. you're not like I had a similar. Uh, my parents had lots of Clash records. Yeah. They gave my dad gave me a tape. Of it was like Bob Marley on one side and then the Clash on the other side. Yeah. And he was like, I was like a precocious shithead as a little kid. And he sure. was like, I listened to the Bob Marley side when I went to sleep at night. And yeah. he was like, You ever, uh, you ever listen to that other side of the Bob Marley tape that I gave you? Huh. And I was like, 
Oh, you mean the Clash? Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit too derivative of Green Day. Nice. Because I had just learned a yeah. little derivative. Hell yeah. And uh, he was, he like repeats that all the time because I used, because I like clearly was just using a brand new word. Right, right. But um, yeah, I definitely had that, like a similar experience where later I was like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. This is parent stuff. Yeah. Um, and I could see how Rancid would be different. Yeah. My parents bought me a Rancid CD also. They mailed it to me at Sleepwood Camp. Nice. Yeah, that's very like a suburban Jew. Yeah, yeah. I just remembered that um, maybe when I was in like fourth grade or something, we took a driving trip to New York, and I had I had my Walkman, and I was reading Animorphs, and I was just listening to my mom's big audio dynamite tape over sure. and over, which is obviously like Mick Jones from the Clashes and Don like, Letts, right? think so I think yeah. Don Letts the filmmaker and like reggae DJ was yeah. in that band cool yeah so how did that like so that how did that interest translate into how, like being involved in a local punk scene um was, was there a punk scene where you grew up it it took a while to figure it out there wasn't a punk scene in Manchester right certainly I mean this is the internet had happened so I'm getting into this culture like basically on my own I don't really have punk friends sure I was kind of just like the affable weirdo I think to everyone in my elementary and middle school sure before I really like hit on punk and had this like concrete aspect of my identity starting at like 12 or whatever so um, it gave me some direction (laughs) probably at like the beginning of high school and I think um, at least to me like punk was still this pretty um, removed idea like I thought punk didn't exist on the east coast like that's why um my mom ended up showing me that uh, that go-kart records comp. The, Your mom got that? Yeah, at Borders Books and Music. Sure. Yeah, because like, I was constantly complaining about how, wow. how like, I needed to move to California to be a punk wow. to the East Bay. Your mom's so cool. My mom is amazing. Yeah. And I'm still like getting into records and bands and going home and finding them in her collection. <laughs> Definitely over the last five, eight years, like I've, I've shown her a lot. We're always bouncing like new things that we're getting into off of each other. She loves Dillinger 4. We've seen Dillinger 4 together like four or five Whoa. times. That's pretty wild. Yeah. So, okay, you're in high school still. You're not involved necessarily in like a... Well, so... Do you go to shows? As as I was going into ninth grade, I started a band with two people in their early 20s. Whoa. Um, In Manchester? In Connecticut. They weren't in Manchester. Um, One of them went to Wesleyan and had grown up in New York. Okay. And one of them uh, lived in like... Bethany, Connecticut, which is like super suburban. Um, and I believe they were they were a couple. They were like straight edge vegan at the time. Um, and we 
God, I can't remember how we met, but I think it was through a message board for like a fest in Connecticut. Okay. Yeah, or like a guest book for for like DIY fest in Connecticut. Cool. Which I guess I want to backtrack to to that fest. Yeah, please. Um, It was called Friendly Fest. Friendly Fest? Friendly Fest. What year is this? Is it the 2000s like 2002 already? 2002. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, and I went because Strike Anywhere was playing. Okay. Do you remember that band? Yeah. Um, they had that weird symbol with the three... Yeah, the anti-fascist yeah. Uh, arrows. Yeah. And um, I went because they were playing, but they were one of like 15 bands or whatever. They were the headliner... And I remember, if this was 2002, I was 14, 15, and I walked in and there's just like tables full of zines in this American Legion hall. I paid my $8 or whatever to get into this 15 band fest. There's tables full of zines and I was just flipping through and I remember um, pulling out a zine that the cover said fuck your fat phobic beauty standards Uh and I was like this is like something I've never heard before (laughs) sure yeah this is new we're seeing some shit we've never seen before Jay yeah you know did you get it or did you just see it and it's just like I don't think I I don't think I bought anything that day you know I wish I did sure but Actually, now that I'm thinking of it, I knew Strike Anywhere because I got an issue of Razor Cake at Borders Books and Music. Because I was like, this is like the punk magazine. Sure. Um, And then I started subscribing to Razor Cake. Wow. Got into Strike Anywhere through, through that. That's wild. Yeah. And, um... Whenever I started subscribing to Razor Cake, mm-hmm. they sent me um, as like a subscription gift. They sent me the first Fleshies album on Alternative Tentacles, "Kill the Dreamer's Dream." Okay. Um, Whoa. Yeah, and that was also pretty uh, mind altering. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with that record. I don't know that record. The first song on it is called Arm the Homeless and it's kind of speculative and uh, the last line on it is what would happen if we arm the homeless I bet they'd do a better job than the police (laughs) and then just like the rest of the songs are about you know (laughs) just just punk shit in a very rock and roll way um, sure. this is John No's band yeah, who's yeah, yeah. in Street Eaters now yeah. um, and I know John now which is wild like I met him this past summer they played Smash It Dead Fest up uh-huh. here yeah. and he and I were both like you look familiar <laughs> and he knew me from being in Razor Cake and I knew him from 
having heard his band like half my life ago for the first time. That's incredible. (laughs) And like reading their interview in Razor Cake and like reading him um, talk about um, how Fleshies would play and he would play in just like a pair of uh, briefs with no gender sharpied on them. And that was also, you know, mind altering. <laughs> sure, I had him, I had him and Megan on the radio show. Yeah, I remember a few seeing that. A, well, a while ago, I guess at this point. But they, yeah, that's so cool. Part of what we talked about was this idea of like whether or not punk should be dangerous, and yeah. if so, to whom? Right. Right, because like I was talking about going like NYHC matinees. Yeah. And how like I really liked the idea that I might get hurt. Sure. And like I was scared. Um, I think I was scared about just like there being violent reprisal for me just do it like behaving incorrectly, uh-huh. or like behaving in ways that were perceived as weak or feminine or whatever. Like uh-huh. I just definitely had this sense like oh I definitely get I like I'm going incognito to these things mm-hmm. as like a spy, and I, I watch these bands and it's this spectacle that I get to perceive or like. This band, the Candy Snatchers, that's from, they're from uh, Virginia Beach, but they had moved to the East Village when I was in high school, and they, they were just like pretty ruthless, just like garage rock animal party dogs. Sure. They were just like always in and out of jail and like beating each other up on stage, and it's really rough and scary. And I felt fear at their shows, and I found that titillating. Sure. And John was contrasting that with like growing up, his high school experience of like going to see Blatz or whatever and feeling like punk was dangerous but not that it was dangerous to him like he was in danger of being uh, having violence done against him but that punk was like this dangerous thing that they were all doing together and pointing towards the bullies and the like the shitty men and the patriarchy and all that it was like thinking about that was very like as an adult was very revelatory to me because I think so much of my perception of uh, that stuff is based on like responding to these like sort of hyper masculine spaces that I spent so much time in. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really interesting to hear you talk about. It's like it doesn't surprise me that a Fleshies record was so mind blowing. It's really cool, and like way cooler than I think of Razor Cake being. <laughs> like I definitely think. I think my. My impressions of Razor Cake are all about Rich Mackin. Sure. Which is pretty unfortunate. Yeah. Um, and like my relationship to him is like a whole, like he trained me how to be a protest medic when I was 16. Oh, wow. Like, he's someone that yeah, I was. Yeah, that was all happening when I was like pretty young, when yeah. I was like 16, 17, I guess. Um, and so then there was like some, some interactions their editorial staff at the time had with the people that were running MRR at the time were like, uh-huh. kind of unfortunate, but um, but like I know like Lauren Denizio does work for them all the time. Like, yeah. People that I think are cool do stuff for Razor Cake, and it's weird because that was like at this point that was a decade ago more. Right. Yeah. So how many of the same people are even still yeah, there? <laughs> Like, I'm, I know Rich isn't involved, hasn't right. been involved for years. For a very long time. I don't know if you saw 
Um, about half a year ago, maybe eight months ago, the article that I was in, Razor Cake, I, I was on the cover of Razor Cake, no. along with Sadie from Gloss and my partner, Kale, and Mars from Inaco. Cool. Um, it was just basically an issue about like trans punks and um, just a lengthy interview with each of us. That rules. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just like I think about like it's just funny the way like the kind of baggage that we all carry about stuff right like yeah, makes sense. Yeah. I got into punk through Rancid. I talked to like older punk friends and they're like no no no, 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 no. that's off, that's the awful shit and I'm just like no that's the great shit yeah like you don't understand and there's just like these slight just a couple years difference in time and place can situate an entire thing in such a different spot so it's really cool it's just cool for me to hear that of like that as this moment um, yeah that was uh, galvanizing for you or whatever in terms of like being uh, like blowing your mind open or establishing your punk identity or whatever yeah Cool. So that's when you're a freshman in high school. You get the fleshy CD and subscribe to Razor. Uh, probably I was pr- I was probably in eighth grade, seventh okay. or eighth grade. Damn. Okay. Yeah. Cool. The internet. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're playing. Oh, and you're a freshman in high school. You play in a band with these two people in their early twenties. Right. Yeah. Um, what did you play? The drums. Cool. Yeah. What it? What was it? Do you want to talk? What was it called? It was called Drama Machine. Okay. And they both played guitar, and this woman, Kiri, sang. Um, We're still Facebook friends. It seems like she does a lot of really cool feminist shit in New York, and we have some mutual friends from the last couple of years. Yeah, of course. So um, we haven't been in great contact, but... Yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah, what are you going to do? It was my first shows it was my first time recording we recorded eight songs cool put it on a demo cdr booked some shows at my parents house booked some shows at some other places tried to book a tour ended up playing i think dc kentucky whoa and uh virginia between the two Wow. Yeah. That's a that's a lot of long drives. And I think that's that's what came through out of a attempted like two week tour or something. Sure. But they came through like close to each other. Sure. So it wasn't that bad. And we toured in a four door sedan and uh Yeah, four door car, no, no, Exactly. Yeah. And I was just pretzled up in the back seat reading fucking Jane Eyre for my 10th grade English class. <laughs> that rules. Yeah. Wow. Did you go to college? Yeah. You in New Haven? Uh, yeah. Is that why you um, like lived there or whatever? I went to college in New Haven because like that's where my friends were. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I so moved was, into like a punk house with my friends. You were already involved in a punk scene there? Yeah, by the time I got to college, I I had been involved in I guess a broader punk scene for 2 or 3 years. 
um, after Drama Machine. Drama Machine didn't last more than a year. And then I started a band called Dennis. <laughs> well, that's a great name yeah. for a band. Because it's such a evocative name for a human. <laughs> what was Dennis like? Um, you played drums also? Yeah. I played drums and sang a bit. Um, everyone, everyone had a microphone for that band. Uh-huh. Uh, well-intentioned egalitarian gestures of a sure. high school band. Yeah. Um, and Dennis was kind of like a, a emo core thing. Okay. Um, the bassist and I were like, I think, trying to start a minor threat-esque hardcore band. But the guitarist who wrote the music was a little older and maybe more refined in his palette and uh, was into um, no idea bands like Army of Ponch and True North. Okay. Um, and Ampere up in our neck of the woods. Yeah. Um, I booked a show, an Ampere Melt Banana show a long, long time ago. I saw Ampere and Melt Banana on tour, so I'm sure it was the same tour. Yeah. <laughs> like 2005 something or like something. That, yeah. 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 That, um, I saw Ampere so many fucking times, but that was the first time I bought merch from them, and I remember they had, like, a split five-inch, like, brand new on that tour. Yeah. Yeah. Steven, uh, I think, was already living at Tompkins House. Like, had already moved to Brooklyn by then. Okay. And was just going up to Western Mass to practice in bands. Yeah. Because I met him in Brooklyn. Okay. Um, and then was like, oh, you, like, ran a record store and shit. Like, yeah, yeah. Got, you had a whole life before you came here. Right. Um, I guess it was probably a little later than 2005 then, because I think he moved down there, like, to them seven or so okay yeah I mean I could yeah. be maybe we realized actually after he moved that I had booked the show I don't remember yeah it's all a blur yeah but, um, the early 2000s sure uh, cool so Dennis then you went to high school to college in New Haven yeah and lived with a bunch of punk friends uh, many of them were in a hardcore band called Rip Shit. Cool. Um, I eventually ended up joining that band on bass, which I learned to play for that band. Sure, bass is easy. Yeah. Like, bass and can be easy. Bass can also be very complicated and blah, blah, so blah. fun. Yeah, it's my favorite thing to play in a band. <laughs> By far. I haven't gotten to, like, play a show playing bass since I think... 2009 or 10 so it's been a while for me too yeah um I remember those shows very fondly there's some uh some footage out there of me having some fun <laughs> sure um and then Dead Uncles happens in New Haven yeah um so Dead Uncles was with the same bassist bassist from Dennis cool um and his brother and when we started I was the when we started I was still in high school and we were just kind of dicking around and then I moved to New Haven 
and Dennis became less of a thing and Dead Uncles became a more serious thing. Sure. Um, it's one of my favorite band names. Thank you. Uh, like, I don't think I've ever heard you guys. Yeah. So, you you know, I'm not, I'm not like, being... Uh, I'm not just being complimentary for the sake of it, but, like... I've, sure. Or else I'd just pretend I'd heard you. Sure. Um, but, like... I have I've seen that I had seen that name on flyers whenever y'all were around yeah and I remember just thinking I have so many dead uncles and it's like the the emotion what that is evocative of emotionally is so complicated and interesting for me and I feel like for a lot of people probably sure and uh, and I was always like really into I was like oh that's a fucking awesome band name Hell yeah. Yeah. I'm stoked about that. One time, um, my boyfriend wore a dead uncle shirt to the hospital. And when I (laughs) went, he had to get something checked out and I went with him. And it was like, we had to walk through the cancer ward on our way out. And like, he definitely made someone cry with his shirt. (laughs) That's fucked That sucks, for sure. Brutality of existence. Yeah. It's all about time and place, right? Yeah. Don't wear the dead uncle shirt to the cancer ward. Exactly. Yeah, we all got to learn those lessons somehow. (laughs) Yeah, so over maybe the course of the first year I was in college, Dennis became harder to do, and dead uncles kind of took more and more of our attention. Sure. Um, When did you start putting out records? When I was in high school, I put out a Dennis 7-inch. Oh, well, and you put it out. Yeah. With, you navigated uh, that whole process of, like, I've never put a record out, so I don't know. It seems complicated to me. Uh, I'm sure it seemed complicated to me. <laughs> I, like, saved up money from my, uh, like, I worked at the library for the last, like, three years of high school, shelving books and saved up money and probably like asked someone what the steps were sure and, um, yeah we like we hand stamped all the center labels on the Dennis record to like save a couple bucks on printing center labels and right. it like looked way worse to save what feels like a fortune back yeah. then but then when you look at it now you're like that's like Less than a week of work. Yeah. Uh, no, totally. No, it was probably to save like 20 bucks. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Because you're getting labels at all. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I made 300 of those. I'm sure we sold like fewer than 100 while we were a band. I was just going to say, how many do you still have? Uh, I don't I would have to check my parents like crawl space cool but I didn't throw many of them out (laughs) Um, was that did you have a name for the label at that point like what were you (laughs) it wasn't Nervous Nelly no okay um I yeah, Nervous Nelly is specifically a project of my partner and I, and okay. I didn't. Um, I understood myself as 
bisexual like pretty early on, but I didn't have any kind of exposure to queerness or queer theory or queer culture. Sure. And Nervous Nelly is very specifically a queer label. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, that came later. Right. <laughs> I think you put out the People Watching record, right? Yeah. Yeah, I got that a while ago. Yeah, I remember um, I was looking at my my mail order records recently, and uh, I was like, oh, Colin ordered from me like before the Gloss record came out. Yeah. So, um, yeah, because I had been listening, because Dave was like, yo, there's this band from Boston that sounds like Ben Out of Shape yeah. and like John claude Jam Band. And I was like, well, that's what I want to listen to. Yeah. Uh, I'm into it. Sign me up. And I was listening on the band camp all the time or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, why well, should just buy this fucking record? Oh, yeah. What's wrong with me? I listen to that shit all the time. Uh, right. I think it's like a great a great LP. I agree. Um, I just got the the, dry, the Dyke Drama 12-inch uh, in the mail from Sadie. Yeah. And I was standing in the kitchen just like looking over it i haven't spun it yet but um i was looking at it and laughed out loud when i saw the center label it's her like pointing a gun at something that you can't see in the picture like pointing a pistol and then i flipped it over and like lost my shit because the b-side center label is her holding a gun in either hand whoa yeah cool yeah Let's see. Let's get this timeline going. So we're yes. you put out a record. You're in high school. Then you're in college. And Dead Uncles is happening. When does? When do you become? I guess like so much of what I know about you as like a public figure in uh-huh. punk or whatever is like very uh, like related to like kind of a public queer identity, right? And sure. Like, I guess when does like when do you become cognizant of that? and like start making art about that or whatever sure right does that make sense yeah um that's a good question and pertinent um so i guess when i was a freshman in college on my own i read cunt by inga Muscio? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I no I, I don't know how to pronounce how to her, her last name. name. Yeah. Um, and I was, I had been turned on to feminism and all sorts of radical discourses before sure. that. But um, I remember the afterword of that book being kind of my first the first time I was reading about gender as a social structure the same way that um, say race is a social structure where it's uh, this imposed ideology upon like a world of human variance and uh, I don't know if you've read the afterword from the second edition of Cunt, but um, basically she apologized for uh, saying throughout the book that, you know, all women are united by having cunts and only women have cunts. Um, Whoa. And, yeah, some cool. some uh, 
very like transphobic stuff initially but that like someone pointed out to her and she uh, took well at length I remember very specifically some remarks in that afterward that she um, feels her gender when other people make her aware of it when she's alone uh, she's not a gendered being Okay. that it's only in social interaction that gender has meaning sure and that resonated really strongly with me and that was kind of I guess there were inklings before that but that was kind of the first time I was like was reading any kind of gender theory I guess Mm -hmm. or kind of social deconstruction of gender sure yeah yeah and that same year, I read She's Not There by Jennifer Finney Boylan, uh-huh. uh, who, I don't know if you're familiar with her. Yeah. She's a pretty prominent mainstream trans woman professor. Cool. As a, a memoir. Um, so I guess, like, freshman year in college, I started kind of becoming acquainted with... Um, some of the more cliche but maybe like more humanizing ideas about trans people sure yeah Um, and probably didn't meet any trans folks until a few years later like in my social circles Um, I guess probably my my boyfriend was like the first um, peer that I met that was transgender that was like into the same stuff as I was. Sure. Uh, there were actually there was actually a trans woman and a trans man at my high school, at my public high school, growing up. Whoa! But yeah, <laughs> that's wild. Yeah. Um, the trans woman I had known since middle school and um, we were in the same circles in high school through like social justice and activist stuff sure Um, yeah yeah but I didn't have any kind of understanding or I don't know. Like, there's no... um, explanation or discussion. It was just like, that's Spencer. So... (laughs) Sure, yeah. Um, Huh. Yeah. It's striking to me that in whatever year it was that you were in high school, there was like two trans people in your high school. Yeah. How big was your high school? Was it bigger? Was it two thousand kids? Or okay, so? that's like a substantial yeah size school. Um, and I might just be ascribing the status of trans woman to this person. Sure. Yeah. Like she started cross dressing in high school and used her old name, but you know, presented as female. So sure. I don't know where she is now or how she. Yeah, who knows? Identifies, but 
Yeah. Um, it's hard not to also like write those narratives for the people in your Exactly. Class, yeah. Yeah. Um, how does that intersect with your like relationship to punk? Or I like, because like the punk stuff. I guess why I'm asking about this is because in regards to the like genealogy of a punk. Yeah. Is because like the like Nervous Nelly is so explicit. It's so punk. Yeah. It's like a really punk label. But um, you know, you were saying that it's like all about uh, working with or like uh, amplifying the voices of queer yeah. artists and bands and like I wonder what's the what's the correlation there for you you know what I mean like why is that important sure um, I think that's that's a result of it being a collaborative project is how it went in that direction um, between me and my partner because sure. um, he I think at present identifies less with punk than I do uh-huh. um, and when we started the label but like that is when we started the label he was like trying very hard to make queer and feminist punk a thing in Nashville and Nashville just was not having it sure um, trying to you know um make the DIY venue there sustainable and uh, people just not wanting to um, keep track of how much money they were taking for the door what was going where um, you know volunteer run DIY space problems yeah they're they could be be happening in Gainesville or Missoula or wherever or just like people booking black metal shows where like dudes were doing really offensive stuff and like taking their dicks out on stage and you know he was he was involved in like this DIY space to try and make it a place that anti-authoritarian queer people could come together sure and he was kind of the only one fighting that battle and booking those particular shows. <laughs> yeah. So we kind of thought doing the label was a way to promote those values without necessarily having to butt heads with people who weren't going to meet us halfway. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's real. Um, do you want to talk about anything else? Do you feel like there's anything... I feel yeah, like there's so much that, yeah. um, that hasn't that I haven't made it to. But yeah, well, yeah, we don't need to. We don't need a comprehensive. But let's talk a little bit about zines then, and then let's sure. call it a day. You have a novella coming out. Yeah, is it coming out? Um, it's not done. You, you're but in the midst of writing a novella. I know who's right. putting it out, and it's cool. like halfway done. Yeah. How'd you start writing? Um, I always just kind of made like what in my head were like publications like magazines or like 
illustrated novels or whatever, like very young. Sure, yeah. And my yeah. parents still have a lot of those. Um, I guess comic books would be like the most accurate. Yeah. Way I think to a lot of what I thought I was making. A lot of my friends that do zines or like have just become like overachieving industrious punk adults. Yeah. Are um, like did that when they were young. Like yeah. Made weird little uh, book pamphlets. And shit. Yeah. <laughs> just like published tracts or yeah. whatever. Um, it's like very common thread that like almost everyone I've interviewed has talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. My parents have a lot of those still. They have my CCD workbook from like first or second grade in which I showed a lot of creativity. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, went pretty far outside the bounds of what was being asked of me. <laughs> And after that first band, Drama Machine, stopped doing stuff is when I kind of made my first zines um, because I felt like I needed a creative punk outlet. Sure. And they were amateurish, but showed my trademark wit and uh, (laughs) self-awareness and... You know, the reviews in MRR and Razor Cake basically said, like, most scenes like this are fucking terrible, but, like, this kid is pretty funny and, like, is clearly a little self-aware if, like, still figuring shit out. Yeah. Um, so I that was, similar. like, great, <laughs> you know? Yeah, definitely. So how long did you... You've done zines consistently since then? No. Uh, <laughs> I did two in maybe a six-month span in 10th grade after Drama Machine broke up. And then I wrote a split zine with Dave uh, in 12th grade, I'm going to say. And that didn't come out until years later. Sure. Because um, of Dave. Yeah. <laughs> He's a monster. Yeah. If there's anything we want to make clear on this podcast, Dave Morse. Dave Morse, Rancid Van Dave Morse, is a monster. Next scene I did was like. 2000 2009 or 10 2010 and um, so I guess it was three years after I wrote the split scene with Dave and definitely like a different tone, um, more kind of self-analysis sure. and self-criticism and seeing criticism. And then I did a zine of poetry, like half a year later, despite not really knowing shit about poetry or it was just kind of prose that I broke up into verse. Sure. <laughs> um, and yeah, I hadn't really written a zine since then. Which Until was, just now? Yeah. Cool. Which was 20, 2011. That's real. And most of the writing in the zine that just came out, well, most of the writing for the book uh, 
happened in 2014. Sure. Um, so I, I'm constantly writing lyrics. Sure. But writing prose is, is harder. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I don't know how to write fiction. Yeah. I've been like really working. I've been really struggling with writing fiction, which is why I'm taking a class at college. Sure. I just like want to be around other people doing it. Yeah. Get input in a yeah. like in a setting where you're not like submitting something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't. I and don't they also know. don't know you. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Just like go fuck around in some town I'm gonna move out of at yeah. the community college. Um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. This is awesome. Cool. Yeah. There was always an urgent need to belong, yeah. All these fans and all these people, all these friends and we were equal, but what you gonna do? Anybody go the blah, blah, blah. Okay, 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 okay. Thank you. Thank you so much if you stuck around this far. And also, sorry that you just had to hear me sing. Thanks are also in order to... Uh, La Cara Occulta, the band that uh, wrote the theme song, Pizzeria Fatale. They wrote that before this show was even something I had conceived of. Uh, thank you as well to Shannon Thompson, the guest. Uh, she's great. There will be all the appropriate links uh, for all her projects in the descriptions on whatever you're listening to this on. You'll be able to find the links. Listen to her bands, buy records from her label, uh, support shit very important uh, thanks also to rancid for uh writing so many songs that got me through high school etc uh thank you to oh this is a new one thank you to pat ganley he edited every everything he edited this whole thing and he's gonna edit all future episodes and i wouldn't have brought back the podcast if it wasn't for him being willing to edit and that means a lot to me, and I don't, I don't know what to say about the current political moment. It's like the fifth day of Donald Trump's presidency, and shit is terrifying. And I don't, I don't know what to do yet. I know that it made me feel like uh, firming up all the relationships I have with people and making sure that. Everyone I know feels supported and that we're all in touch and organizing with each other. Um, but yeah, I don't know. You don't look to me for answers. This is a moment of respite. Uh, so I hope it was that. And uh, next month we got Ted Leo on the show. So that should be pretty cool. You know, if you're, like, if you're talking about, you're talking about looks and stuff like yeah. I don't, you know, like I don't have to fuck to do with my hair because I don't want to shave my head. Right. But this is all my hair does, and I'm really, <laughs> I'm really afraid. Like it's, I'm really afraid of looking too rockabilly at that time. You know. 
Yeah. It's like I wake up and it's yeah. like this. You know, it's like all. I think it looks day. it looks power pop on you though, so you don't need to worry. <laughs> it's like that. You know what I mean? You don't. Yeah. You, if you grew it a little longer, you might you might have to like be veering towards rockabilly. Yeah. But I think you're good. You're good for That's now. That's funny. Yeah. Also, like, just don't wear creepers, and I think you're safe. No. <laughs> 